You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC 284, Mahachev versus Volkanovsky, preview, predictions, and analysis. UFC 284 takes place at the RAC Arena in Western Perth, Australia. In the main event of the evening, you have one of the fights of the year, one of the most highly anticipated fights in recent memory with champ versus champ. You have the 145-pound featherweight champion in the 25-1 and Alexander the Great Volkanovsky moving up to 155 pounds to take on the reigning defending UFC lightweight champion coming off of a second round submission victory over the former champion in Charles Dobronx Oliveira in the Habib Nurmagomedov and Abdulmanap Nurmagomedov prodigy and I guess you could say pupil in Islam Mahachev who comes in with a record of 23 victories and one defeat. And then in the co-main event of the evening for the interim featherweight championship, you have a battle between the number two ranked featherweight in Yair El Pantera Rodriguez, who comes in with a record of 15 victories and three defeats, going up against the number five ranked streaking contender fighting out of Sacramento's team alpha male in Josh Emmett, who comes back with a record of 18 victories with only two Defeats. The main event features a bout with a combined record of, what is it? I can't even think right now. I'm so excited. I'm so hyped. 48-2 and two overall. This is going to be a great night of fights. This is a phenomenal main event. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, everybody, let's get it popping. What's going on? We haven't done a podcast since the last pay-per-view, UFC 283. We've been very active on our YouTube channel. If you haven't checked it out, we are currently sitting at just over 2,600 subscribers. Now, just around a week and a half ago, we were at only 550. I uploaded a video discussing the Roman Reigns, Sami Zayn, and Jimmy Uso slash Jay Uso angle that's been going on on the WWE for a really long time. And the video's at over 600,000 views. That video has changed the trajectory of my channel. It has gotten me monetized on YouTube, and I can't thank anybody enough. Thank you all for tuning into the podcast. If you come listen to the podcast and also tune into my YouTube channel, then thank you as well. I couldn't do any of this without you. Finally being able to make some money off of doing this for so long. We've been doing this for about three years, all on our own, no help. Just, you know, editing, recording, posting, coming up with ideas. Everything is by me, you know. And I have some suggestions here and there from people that I know. But, I mean, I kind of am a one-man show over here. So I hope I can continue to be a one-man show and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you can start seeing me over at the UFC events covering the biggest and best fights in the world with the biggest and baddest fighters on the planet. But... Let's get it started, man. We're going to do one prelim breakdown, and we're going to break down four fights on the main card. Uh, I decided to skip the Junior Taffa fight or Justin Taffa fight. I think it's Junior Taffa. Um, It's just not really an interest to me, you know, him and Parker Porter. I like Parker Porter. I like his ability. I like his striking on the feet, but it's just not something that I want to spend time breaking down. And there were some other prelims on the card that I wanted to touch on. Uh, Maybe at the end of the podcast, I'll give you like just a quick rundown of the predictions without a breakdown of like who else I like on the card. I wanted to break down the Loma Lukbudmi fight, but you know, there's just so much to go into, especially when it comes to the co-main and main event. 
the two championship fights and the championship doubleheader that I think it's better to just pick the one prelim and then go to the main card. So we're going to kick it off in the light heavyweight division with Tyson Pedro, who comes in with a record of nine victories and three defeats. And the returning Modestus, the, the Baltic Gladiator, I believe, Bukowskis, who comes in with a record of 13-5. and five. You know, Bukowskis went away from the UFC, went over and competed in Cage Warriors, I believe, and actually was able to win the light heavyweight championship in that promotion. I'll pull that up real quick. 13-5. and five. Sorry, I use SureDog all the time, so it might be a little slow on some. Um, out of the 13 victories, he's got 11 by finish, 2 by decision, 9 KOTKOs, and 2 submissions. The Baltic Gladiator, out of his 5 losses, 3 by KOTKO, 1 by submission, and 1 by decision. But he's currently on a 2-fight win streak. He left the UFC after suffering a 3-fight losing skid, where he lost to Jimmy Crute via KO in the first round. He lost to Mihal Oleksiejczyk at UFC 260 via split decision. And then he lost via TKO to Khalil Roundtree with that brutal front leg sidekick to the knee, which blew his knee apart and caused the TKO in the second round. He then went over to Cage Warriors and competed against Lee Chadwick on November 4th of 2022. He defeated him via unanimous decision. And then he competed against Chuck Campbell for the light heavyweight championship at Cage Warriors 148. And he won that fight via KO in the fourth round with a beautifully timed right hand, the one-two right down the middle, caught him on the chin and put him to sleep. So he's coming in on a two-fight win streak, but when he was in the UFC, he had a three-fight losing skid against Roundtree, Oleksiejczyk, and Kruth. Those aren't the worst guys to lose to, so you know you can't really complain, but his overall UFC run before he went away was one and three, and then he's on a two-fight win streak. So he's three and three in his last six fights, three losses inside the UFC, and then one win in the UFC, and the other two when he returned over to Cage Warriors. So look, I like Modestus Bukowskis. He's a decent fighter. Like the guy's long, he's rangy. He's very big and built for the weight class. I mean, the guy's built like a brick shit house. He's got he's got big muscles, huge legs, very very well rounded fighter. Um, uses a lot of lead leg kicks, whether it's to the body or to the head. When he attacks the low kicks and tries to attack the opponent's base, they more come from the back leg with the right low kick. But when it comes to power kicks to the body and kicks to the head, a lot of it's off the lead hand, the jab, the left hook into the left body kick, the left high kick. He loves that lead leg kick, whether he's switching stances or whether he's staying in the orthodox stance and throwing it off the lead leg, maybe fainting it behind a jab. The win he had in the UFC over Andres Mihailidis, the fight was close, but Bukowski's lateral movement, you know, his lateral movement, his in and out pace, you know, popping the jab, constantly moving right low kick, jab left hook, right low kick, one, two, right low kick, moving around, moving left and right. His lateral movement is very good. You, you rarely ever see Bukowski's you know, stationary in any position. And I think that's going to help him in the fight against Tyson Pedro, who's a very quick and explosive fighter. He rarely ever stays in one spot. Whenever he lands, he's always moving laterally, you know, cutting angles, circling off, keeping the high guard. You know, he is, you know, a liability. He does get hit, but his defense is not bad. So I don't want you to think that coming into this fight, he has no defense and he's going to be a human punching bag. That's not what he is. And then when you look at Tyson Pedro, he's coming into the fight nine and three, I'm coming off two back-to-back -back knockout victories, one over Harry Hunsucker, which was in his last fight. He won via a first-round TKO. He landed the front kick to the body after he hurt him with a jab, jumped on him, and finished him off, and that was back in August of 2022. And then prior to that, he competed in April against Isaac Villanueva. That was at UFC Fight Night 205, and he won via 
a TKO or a KO. He dropped him with low kicks. He was just chopping up the lead leg of Isaac Villanueva, the right low kick, the right knees to the body, the left hook, right knee to the body, left hook, right body kick. He hurt him with a low kick after just chopping it over and over in the first round. And then when he dropped him up against the cage, he ran up to him and landed two vicious uppercuts as Villanueva was in a seated position and knocked him out. And the thing about Tyson Pedro prior to that, he lost to Mauricio Shogun Hua via TKO in the third round. That was in December of 2018. And then he lost via submission to Ovent St. Peru in the first round at UFC on UFC fight night, 132 Cerrone versus Edwards. And look, those two losses are not good losses to have. Even Mauricio Shogun Hua in 2018 was not a good fighter. Ovin St. Peru, I mean, you look at the guy's record. He's been so hot and cold ever since he had that fight against John Jones. I mean, the guy is, let's see. Uh, I mean, let's just look at like his last few fights. He had a victory over Mauricio Shogun Hua via split decision, a knockout loss to Tanner Bozer, a knockout loss to Jamal Hill, a KO win over Alonzo Menfield back in September of 2020. That was in the second round. And then prior to that, he had a loss to Ben Rothwell via split decision, a win via submission over Michael Oleksiejczyk, and then two back-to-back losses over Dominic Reyes and Nikita Krylov. So, I mean, just going off his last few fights, he's got five losses and three victories in his last few fights. So the guy is not the best. Three and five in his last eight. 26 and 16 overall is OSP. So you got to look at that when you look at Tyson Pedro. You know, he's not the most, you know, he has some questionable losses, I guess you could say. And in this fight, I think it's very simple. You know, if Bukowskis can stay on the outside and pick him apart, land the jab over and over, land the left hook, chop the right low kick whenever Tyson Pedro tries to close the distance, work the lead kick to the body, and just be elusive. The best thing for Modestus Bukowskis is to be elusive. He's got to constantly move laterally, move left and right, feint, shuffle step, angle step, jab, left hook, right low kick, one, two, right low kick, cross, hook right body kick. Like he's got to be constantly moving cross shuffle into the lead body kick a la Jan Blahovich. Like that's what he has to do. He has to be on his bicycle and poking and prodding for the entire 15 minutes and hoping that he doesn't get caught by Pedro because if Pedro can shut it down, close the distance and land some big shots on, you know, Bukowskis and slow him down with the low kicks. I mean, he got hurt with a lead side kick to the knee and I believe it was his lead leg. So I know Pedro is going to be looking to chop low kicks early and often to try to slow down the movement and make Bukowskis a stationary target. I know Bukowskis is coming off two back-to-back victories in cage warriors. And you know, he's, he's on the up and up after losing three back-to-back fights inside the UFC, but you got to be realistic here. This fight is basically a coin flip, but just going off the fact that, you know, Bukowskis had some Rough patches in the UFC, went over to Cage Warriors. I think he will come back a better fighter, but I still think the technical striking of Tyson Pedro paired up with the speed and power. I mean, the guy's fast. He's got very good technique. The right hand is beautiful. The one-two down the middle, the right low kicks, the left hooks. He's not the most you know, active when it comes to volume over the 15 minutes. I feel like Bukowskis will look more active because of the excessive movement, but you know, neither of these guys are the most active, but I think the speed of Tyson Pedro is going to give Bukowskis a lot of trouble. I think the low kicks are going to slow down his lateral movement. And I think eventually Pedro is going to shut him down, close the distance and land a bomb on him and knock him out. I don't think Bukowskis comes back and gets a win here. This is a fight I wouldn't bet on though. If you're looking at betting spots for the card. I think Pedro and Bukowskis is a fight that you stay away with just because I know 
Bukowskis didn't have the greatest run in the UFC, but coming off two back-to-back victories in Cage Warriors, he's going to have more confidence coming in here. And we kind of don't know what kind of Bukowskis we're going to see. Like, he's always kind of the same fighter, but when these guys go away for a little bit and come back, you always think they're going to be renewed and have some new weapons that they probably didn't showcase in their UFC career, you know, leading up to their release. So, you know, I'm going to go with Pedro. I think Bukowskis is going to have a better run in the UFC this time, but I don't think he gets the job done against Tyson. I think Tyson slows him down, chops him with the low kicks, you know, makes him stationary and starts landing a big right hand and drops Bukowskis and gets him out of there. So I'm going to go with Tyson Pedro to defeat Modestus Bukowskis via a second round TKO. I think it's going to be a good fight though, and I wouldn't bet on it overall. All right, and now we move to the main card in a battle in the light heavyweight division between the number 12 ranked Jim the Brute Crute, who comes in with a record of 12 victories and three defeats, going up against Atomic Alonzo Menfield, who comes back with a record of 13 victories and three defeats. 12 and 3, 13 and 3. Can Alonzo Menfield break into the top 12 or the top 15? Or will Crute stake his claim to move slightly closer to the top 10? I love this fight. I think this fight is absolutely perfect when it comes to the matchmaking. I think this is a little bit of a step down in competition for Jimmy Crute. And that's not to say it's a bad thing or a bad look when it comes to Alonzo Menfield. However, or Menefield, I'm sorry. I think Menefield is a really solid fighter. I think he has a lot of power. I think he's built like a brick house for this division. But when you look at Jimmy Crute, I mean, he has some questionable you know, performances recently in his career. But if you look at the overall, you know, caliber of opponents that he's fighting, he's has two back-to-back losses, one over Anthony Lionheart Smith at the end of the first round due to the right low kicks, the calf kicks, you know, shutting down the peroneal nerve and causing the drop foot on Jimmy Crute, you know, not making him able to come out for the second round and continue the fight. And then most recently, he just lost to the undisputed or I guess interim, but it is going to be undisputed since Shiri Prohaska is gone now due to injury in the UFC light heavyweight champion, Jamal Sweet Dreams Hill. He lost via 48 seconds into the first round via knockout, or he lost in 48 seconds of the first round due to a knockout. That was at the end of 2021, December 4th, 2021, you know, um, so we haven't seen Crute in over a year. It's just over a year, slightly over a year since Jimmy Crute has been in the octagon, but with two back-to-back losses and kind of beatdowns in that regard, he had a decent showing against Smith, but the jab was too much. The right hand was too much. The lack of head movement kept him on the center line for the jab of Anthony Smith all night. And the jab set up the low kick, the jab, right? Low kick is a common tie style combination. It's a common kickboxing combination. Jab, right, low kick, jab, left hook, right, low kick, faint the jab, left hook, step off on an angle, right, low kick. And he didn't move his head away from the jab. It was just too fast for him. When it comes to Alonzo Menfield, I mean, the guy is decently technical, but I would give Jimmy Crute the technical advantage. I think he's the more crisp striker. I think he has better technique, but he lacks head movement. And against a guy in Menfield who has really, really heavy power with really heavy explosiveness right from the start of the fight, he can you know, kind of work his way into using that power. He'll use some lateral movement, use some feints, kind of sidestep, glide around the octagon to, you know, trap the opponent, get the outside foot and direct him in, direct them into the power that he possesses. But for the most part, I mean, he's just explosive and he knows he's got that power and that's what he's going to use. He's going to get in your face. He's going to land the hook, land the uppercuts. I mean, he landed a right hook against Misha Serkinov and then a left uppercut right up the middle. I believe it was a right hook and a left uppercut. We'll actually check that out right now. 
let's see. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, left hook and a right uppercut. It was more like a hook and uppercut hybrid, a hooker cut, I like to call those. You know, but he left hook at the outside foot, boom, bang the right hook slash uppercut and knocked him out against um against Askar Mazarov. It was basically the same thing. Close the distance, find the opening for the big power shot, land the right hand, land the big hooks, get him to the ground, get into the crucifix position and land the strikes. I think that the cardio advantage is definitely going to be on the Jimmy Crute side. If Crute can, you know, has fixed his head movement deficiencies that he had before and he can get his head off the center line and roll underneath the big wide hooks of Alonzo Menfield, I think he can use his grappling. I think he can take Menfield down. Menfield has good takedown defense and he has a, you know, good grappling base based on how strong he is. However, I just think that if Crute can mix in the takedowns, tie it up with the jab, the left hook, the right low kick, you know, catch and return. Jimmy Crute doesn't really have head movement. He's more of a catch and return fighter. He'll block your shot, come back with a right hand, block the shot, come back with a hook, you know, catch the kick, sweep it across, come back with a low kick, catch the kick, sweep it across, come back with a body kick, left hook, right body kick. He's very good at catching and returning, but the lack of head movement against a big power striker like Alonzo Men Menafield is going to worry me in this fight. And based off the fact that Jimmy Crute's been knocked out in his last two losses, even though the Anthony Smith one was due to calf kick that he was TKO'd. He was getting hurt a lot with the jab of Anthony Smith. He was getting pieced up. You know, he timed the right hand a little, a few times. He took down Anthony Smith after he tried to close the distance and had some decent work on the ground, but you know, that jab was piecing him up and he just couldn't see it coming. And then the knockout against Jamal Hill. I mean, timing him with that check, right hook, bang, dropped him. He tried to step into range again, boom, check, right hook. Dropped him. Boom. One more shot on the ground. Knocked him out. He's been gone for a while, so I feel like he's healed in terms of brain health and ability to take a punch. But Menfield's power is going to worry me. I think that Jimmy Crute is the more technical guy. If he mixes in the wrestling and the grappling, he can definitely do some good work against Menfield. If he can slow him down, get that lactic acid building in the muscles, use the grappling, use the jab, time the low kicks, you know, catch and return, and really outwork him. I think he could get a, a finish in the second run. Ugh, I think he can get a finish in the second or the third round. But breaking down the fight, I'm worried about the chin of Jimmy Crute. I know he was a big prospect going into that fight against Anthony Smith, but that knockout against Jamal Hill, even though Hill is the current UFC light heavyweight champion, I worry about his ability to take a punch. And against a guy in Menfield, although he's not as technical with the power that he possesses, I have to side with the power striker here. I think the overall more well-rounded fighter is Jimmy Crute. But more well-rounded skill set doesn't always win when you're going up against a guy who's got an atomic bomb in his right hand like Alonzo Menfield. So I'm going to go with Alonzo or Atomic Alonzo Menfield or Atomic Alonzo Menefield to defeat Jimmy the Brute Crute and crack into the top 12 of the division or the top 15 of the division, however you want to describe it, via a second-round knockout victory. I think the first round is going to be close, but I think he's going to land a big shot land the right hand, land the uppercut on Jimmy Crute, drop him and get him out of there. The chin just gives me too many questions. This is another fight I probably wouldn't bet on in terms of the overall card. Um, there's some tricky betting spots here. I could see why you want to take either side. If I'm going to pick one bet, I don't know what the line is, but it's probably going to be juice to the gills. I would say fight doesn't go the distance or potentially taking the under two and a half rounds. I think the fight gets finished either way, whether it's the you know, power punching of Alonzo Men Menafield that drops Jimmy Crute and gets him out of there, or Crute hurts him on the feet, takes him down, ground and pounds him, and gets a submission. But I don't think it goes the full distance. So I would say if you're looking for a betting spot, you would want to do the under two and a half 
or fight doesn't go to decision. But in terms of an overall pick, I just got to side with the power of Men- Menefield. So I'm going to go with Atomic Alonzo Menefield to defeat Jimmy Crute via second round knockout. The next fight up we're going to break down is in the welterweight division between rising contender and prospect in Jack Della Maddalena, who comes in with a record of 13 victories and two defeats, going up against a UFC veteran, so to speak, at this point in his career, in long, tall, and rangy Randy Rude Boy Brown, who comes back with a record of 16 victories and four defeats. This is a really interesting fight. It's not as easy as people are thinking for Jack Della Maddalena. I think just because of how dominant he's been in his UFC career, even though he had that slight submission scare against Ramazan Amiv, and the submissions are something he's going to have to look out for against the long, rangy fighter in Brown with the long arms and you know just the long limbs in general, where he could potentially lock up the neck of Maddalena. You know, this is going to be a hard fight. You know, Randy Brown is not an easy guy to compete against. He has a very long reach a very long range, and that's going to be something that Madalena is going to have a hard time covering. I think it's going to be hard for Madalena to close the distance. He's a minus 305 favorite on most sports book. I don't necessarily agree with the fact that he's that big of a favorite, but, you know, 5'11 to 6'3, so Randy Brown is going to have a 4-inch height advantage and a 5-inch reach advantage, 73-inch reach for Jack Della Madalena, 78-inch reach for Rude Boy Brown. But even though he's got that reach, Randy Brown is so good at using it. He's going to be popping the jab. He's going to be slipping, rolling off the center line. He likes to fight out of the side stance a lot when it comes to his defense. He likes to pull, slip, roll, jab, you know, lower his level, kind of squat, you know, pop shot, jab, you know, squat down, you know, quick sit, I guess is what it's called. That's what I like to call it. So he'll jab, quick sit, slip, slip, roll underneath, always be off on an angle, pop the jab, one, two, right, low kick, front kicks to the legs, side kicks to the knee to kind of stop the opponent from closing the distance, front kicks to the body. It's all the long-range weapons for Randy Brown. But if you get in close to him, he has good submissions as well. He can lock up a front choke. He's very good at the, uh, what is it called? I can't think of this. I tried to think of it before. It's the, not the Bravo choke. Uh, Oh, what is it called? I can't think of it. Hold on. Not the 10 finger guillotine. It's the. Hold on. I think of this. I can't think of this. MMA front choke. Uh, not the guillotine. I can't think of it, but you know, it's like the rear naked choke grip, and you have them in the front headlock. If you can think of the name, then go ahead. But for some reason, it's escaping me. I just talked about this, too, on one of the videos that I did. But, you know, if Madalena leaves his head out there, he can get caught. We saw it against Ramazan Amiv, almost got caught in that Darce choke and submitted. But, you know, it didn't happen, and he fought his way out. And when he got back up to the feet, he knocked him out. Madalena has some of the best boxing in the whole UFC, let alone in the welterweight division. And Randy Brown is a guy where he's very good defensively, but he is hittable because he keeps his hands so low. And keeping your hands so low against a technician like Jack Della Maddalena, I think it's a recipe for disaster when it comes to Randy Brown. I really do. Like, I know he's long. I know he's rangy. But Maddalena is so good at slipping, rolling underneath the shots, and immediately coming back with counters. He loves the right hook to the body in southpaw. 
He loves the left hook to the body in orthodox. And the fact that Madalena is fighting a guy in Randy Brown who likes to fight out of that side stance, that traditional side stance sometimes when he when it comes to how he defends uh, you know, from strikes with the slips, rolls, pivots, quick sits, stepping off on an angle. If Madalena can get that outside foot when Randy Brown is in that side stance, being parallel to your opponent opens up the body for hooks and uppercuts. So I think if he can get that outside foot when Randy Brown uses those slips and rolls, if he can fake and faint, step to the outside with the lead foot and ran, you know, slam that left or right hook to the body, slam the uppercuts to the body, and then work his way with the hook, cross, hook, jab, hook, cross, up top to the head. When he gets his combinations going, Jack Della Maddalena can flow. I don't necessarily think we're going to see much grappling from either guy. I think this is going to be a striking matchup. If Madalena is stuck behind the jab, the front kicks, the side kicks to the knee, and all the long rangy weapons of Randy Brown that use that he uses to accentuate his advantages inside the cage and inside his mixed martial arts game, then Randy Brown can run away with it. But due to the lateral movement, due to the slips, due to the rolls, you know, there's no wasted movement when it comes to Jack Della Madalena, both offensively and defensively. When he moves laterally, he rolls underneath, he slips, but it's little slight changes. It's not a big roll where he steps off balance and he has to adjust the stance. It's not a huge slip where he has to readjust, get back to the center, and then work. He can use those slips and rolls and use that, you know, very efficient movement to come back with counters. And I think that's where Randy Brown is going to get pieced up. The slips off the jab, coming back with the shot to the body, left hook up top. When he gets in the side stance, Madalena steps to the outside with the lead right foot, right hook, left uppercut to the body, left hook. Then he comes back up top because Brown's going to defend the body. Right hook, straight left, switch orthodox, double jab, right hand, left hook, right hand, left hook to the body. I mean, even against Danny Roberts, once he started working the body and got Roberts up against the cage, he shut him down. That shot to the body was nasty. The hooks to the body from Madalena, whether it's orthodox or southpaw, because he will switch stance mid-combination and cut you off and then just bombard you and drown you under his beautiful technical boxing. The guy does not waste any movement. Like I said, defensively, he's extremely well-rounded. He's got some of the best boxing in MMA, and I just think it's going to be too much for Brown. If Brown can use his range, use his distance, use his kicks, and keep Madalena unable to close the distance, then I think he can piece him up and potentially get a decision. But I just don't see him being able to keep a guy like Madalena who's so effective with his movement, lateral movement, and so, you know, there's no wasted movement when it comes to Madalena, like we said. And I just think eventually he's going to close that distance, get the outside foot, catch Brown in the side stance and start ripping him to the body, work up top, get a bombard or bombard him with a barrage of punches and eventually get him out of there. So my pick is going to be Jack Della Madalena to improve his win streak, stay undefeated in the UFC and move to 14 and two, defeating Randy Brown via a second round TKO. I think he will get out of the first round, but that side stance and the, the, you know, lack of respect that Randy Brown has for the offense of his opponents. If he keeps that hands down style and that side stance kind of traditional martial arts style, when he slips and rolls away from shots, Madalena is going to get that outside foot, tear that body up, work up top to the head and get him out of there. So Jack Della Madalena to improve to 14 and two and defeat Randy rude boy Brown via a second round TKO. I like Madalena when it comes to the betting spots, um, he's like a minus 315, something like that on the money line. But I would say take the fight doesn't go to decision or 
Jack Della Maddalena by TKO. Those are probably your two best bets when it comes to breaking down this fight because I don't think Randy Brown would make it the distance. And I think if Brown's able to beat Maddalena, he'll probably lock up a submission or something, but I don't see it going the full 15. So either fight doesn't go the distance under two and a half or Jack Della Maddalena by TKO. Those are the looks on the fight, but I'm going with JDM via TKO. All right, and now we're at the co-main event of the evening for the interim UFC featherweight championship. You have the number two ranked Yair El Pantera Rodriguez, who comes into the fight with a record of 15 victories with three defeats, going up against the number five ranked Josh Emmett, who comes in with a phenomenal record in his own right of 18 victories with only two defeats. I love this fight, man. This is one of the best fights on the card. I mean, it's the co-main event, the interim featherweight championship. If Alexander Volkanovsky defeats Islam Mahachev and, you know, gains the lightweight title, then this fighter, whoever wins this, would more than likely become the new featherweight champion. If Volkanovsky loses and comes back down, then you have your next challenger for Volkanovsky if he decides to stay at 145. I love the fight. I, I really do. I think this is a very technical matchup. You've got power and speed versus technique and fluidity, I feel like, is the best way to describe this. And you also have the wrestling on the side of Emmett, which I could see him using because we've seen Yair have issues with the wrestling, especially against Frankie Edgar. That was kind of earlier in his UFC career when he was rising up to be a contender. But, you know, he's had trouble with the takedowns, the wrestling, the top pressure. Jeremy Stevens was able to wrestle him. The longer the fight goes, the more the wrestling of Josh Emmett is going to play into this fight. I really think he's going to use a lot of grappling if it gets to the third, the fourth, the fifth round. And we've seen with Emmett, especially against Cater, you know, he he's pretty not he's not slow, but he's very methodical and he picks his shots. And that allows him to keep his cardio into the third, the fourth, the fifth round, as we saw against Kelvin. I thought Kelvin Cater did enough to beat Josh Emmett in that fight. I thought he won three rounds to two, but it was a close fight and I'm not completely pissed off that Emmett did enough to win that. Like Emmett won the fight, I guess, but I thought Kelvin did beat Josh Emmett. I thought Dan Ige, I just rewatched the fight with Dan Ige and Josh Emmett. I thought Ige could have got the decision aside from a couple of the big power shots that Emmett landed in the third round when Ige couldn't move his head effectively. Emmett is the guy who is going to lose the rounds until he lands that big overhand right. He lands that big straight right hand. He lands that big right hand into the left hook, which drops you or hurts you, and he can land a barrage. You know, he's losing until he's not. And usually once he lands, you know, he's going to put you to sleep. I mean, just look at the fight with Michael Johnson. When Johnson was at 145, he was beating Josh Emmett handedly, beating him every round. And then within the last, like, 20 seconds of the third round, he lands that overhand right, gets to the outside of the lead right foot of Michael Johnson and lands that picture-perfect home run overhand right and knocks Michael Johnson out with one punch. Against Shane Burgos, he was losing the fight, but every time he landed on Burgos' chin, he dropped him. He dropped him like three times in that fight. And if he wouldn't have scored those knockdowns, then Burgos more than likely would have got the decision. It's Josh Emmett's power, his explosiveness, the ability to land those big bombs on the chin of his opponents that really win Josh Emmett these fights. But he's very methodical because he knows he's a big explosive guy with a lot of muscle. And at 145, he has the cardio, but it's because he fights smart. With El Pantera, Yair Rodriguez, Yair is a very, very technical striker. I mean, you know that you're going to get spinning hook kicks, jumping two-touch roundhouse kicks like he knocked out Andre Feely with early in his career. I believe that was at UFC 197. Spinning back kicks, hook kicks, lead leg round kicks, low kicks. You know, question mark kicks, rear round kicks, hook kicks, any type of kick you want, you're going to get it from Yair. He caught the Korean zombie with that spinning back elbow, or not a spinning back elbow, but the upward elbow right at the end of the fifth round in the fight where he was going to lose the decision. 
you know, caught the pressure of the Korean zombie and met him head on, ducked down, landed that up elbow, and the Korean zombie ran head first into it and knocked himself out. He caught Jeremy Stevens with a brutal body kick and dropped him and hurt him, you know, almost finished him. And then he, he slowed down, you know, and Jeremy Stevens was able to get that cardio back, push the pace, take down Yair, but he did enough to win the decision. I really like this fight, and I know I've said that a lot, but this is a very interesting fight to break down because it's really going to be the fact of can Josh Emmett land the big power shots, the overhand right, the left hook, the straight right hand, the one-two, the stance switch straight left from southpaw. He dropped Shane Burgos with that stance switch straight left or quick sit or darting straight left multiple times in their fight, and that is something that Yair is going to have to look out for because Emmett is kind of like an offensive lineman. You know, he moves like a lineman. It's very, you know, you know, really quick, fast twitch muscle fibers, you know, left and right, lateral movement in and out. But a lot of the movement from Josh Emmett is lateral, and that's what allows him to hide those stance switch straight left hands and those pot shots. He'll, he'll, he'll move laterally, left, right, left, right, come in, forward, backward, left and right, left and right. Where are you coming from? Bop, switch southpaw and land that straight left. It's like you're throwing – a jab, but you're switching your stance. So the jab is now your power hand and it cracks a lot of his opponents on the chin and he catches a lot of people off guard. I mean, the right hand into the picture, perfect left hook that he knocked out Ricardo Lamas with. If he lands on the chin of Yair Rodriguez, he can put him out. And if Yair lands one of the big kicks to the body, especially if Emmett's in Southpaw, look for him to attack with that right kick to the body. If Emmett's in Orthodox, he'll probably one, two switch Southpaw or one, Jab, right hook, switch southpaw, left kick to the body. Attack the right low kick when they're both in the orthodox stance. Uh, the kicking game is going to be heavy. It's going to be early. It's going to be often for, you know, Yair Rodriguez. And then when it comes to the power and the movement, you know, it's going to be Yair who has to take the cardio away from Emmett with the body kicks, with the front leg side kicks to the knee, the low kicks, affect the movement, attack the calf like he did against Max Holloway. I really think the kicking game of Yair is going to be a big problem for Emmett, but I could also see him catching a kick of Yair and then finding a way to turn that into a left hook, catch, sweep across, left hook, catch over the top with the overhand right catch the kick, land the right hand to drop him and get in the top position. I think the cardio of Emmett is going to, you know, probably bank him the fourth and the fifth round, but it's going to be, is he going to be able to take the damage of the kicking game and the power kicks of Yair Rodriguez? Because Rodriguez is the best kicker at 145 pounds, but he's also one of the best traditional martial artists inside the UFC, aside from Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, when it comes to mixing up his kicking game. So you really have to be careful. This fight is this fight. This fight. This fight is basically a coin flip, in my opinion. Like, this is a very, very hard matchup to call. I could see Yair picking him apart with the low kick, slowing down Emmett, and ripping the body shots with the, you know, southpaw left back kick to the body when he's in orthodox. The right kick to the body when they're both in orthodox. The right low kick, stance switch, and a southpaw, boom, left kick to the body. I could see the body kicks and the low kicks slowing down Emmett, and then he can set up a beautiful high kick, a question mark kick over the top. I think it's going to be working low, multi-level combinations, low kicks, body kicks, you know, low level with the legs, mid-level body, and then eventually working up to the head. But the speed and power that Yair has is extremely underrated, I feel like. And you saw that in the Max Holloway fight. That fight was back and forth. That fight was close. You know, Max Holloway won it, but it was only two rounds 
or three rounds to two. And Yair had a fantastic first round. I mean, chop the low kicks, land in the right hand. Everything that Yair throws is explosive. It's fast twitch, which is why he gets tired, you know, later in the fight. And I think that Josh Emmett is the exact same way, but Yair just throws so much more volume that he tires himself out quicker. Emmett's a little bit more methodical. He's a little bit more economical with the shots that he throws and he picks his shots, which allows him to carry that cardio over into the third the fourth and the fifth round, which is something he's going to need here. I fully expect Josh Emmett to bank the fourth and the fifth. So if we give the championship rounds to Emmett, that would mean that Yair would have to win the first three rounds and, you know, not get caught. I think we'll see Emmett mix in the wrestling, but I really do think that the body kicks and the kicking game of Yair is going to be too much for Emmett. And I think the body kicks are going to shut down Josh Emmett. And eventually, if it's not the body kicks that take him out, it's going to be the kicks up top to the head. The low kicks are going to slow down the movement. It's going to slow down the explosiveness. And I know, you know, on, on one hand, that is true. But on the second hand, I mean, he ripped his entire knee apart in the fight against Shane Burgos and still basically fought on one leg and was able to use his fast twitch muscle fibers, his movement and his footwork to land big power shots and win that fight via decision and drop Burgos even with a torn apart knee. So I don't expect the low kicks to really slow down Emmett completely, but getting kicked by Shane Burgos and then getting low kicked by Yair Rodriguez is a different thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a different level of kicking game. It's a different level of technique. It's a different level of hip action, a different level of torque and power that comes in those kicks from Yair Rodriguez. And I think it's going to be something different than Josh Emmett's ever felt. But at the same time, the overhand right and the power punches of Josh Emmett is going to be something that Yair hasn't really dealt with either. We've seen Yair have trouble with the wrestling. Jeremy Stevens and Frankie Edgar are two perfect examples, you know, and the cardio is what failed Yair in the fight against Jeremy Stevens, which allowed Jeremy to take the back, take him down. I think we're going to see Emmett resort to the wrestling later on in the fight when Yair's slowing down from hitting all those kicks, the kicks to the body, the low kicks, the kicks up top to the head. But when it really comes down to it, Yair is going to have a five inch reach or a height advantage at 5'11 to 5'6 for Josh Emmett. And he's also going to have only a one inch reach advantage, but when it comes to the leg reach, he's going to have a two inch leg reach advantage. And that's what you really have to look at because it's going to be a hit, a kick heavy game and kick heavy offense from El Pantera Yair Rodriguez. And when it comes to breaking down the fight, I really think it's going to be hard for Emmett to close the distance and crash the pocket. You know, he's going to have to stay in boxing range because every time you're at kicking range, unless he can explode as Yair's throwing his kicks, you know, before he's able to get the kick up right in mid extension and he can land that right hand, the overhand, right, the left hook, the one, two down the middle, then he can catch Josh or uh, Yair Rodriguez. I really think that stance switch straight left hand in southpaw is going to be a big weapon against Yair if he can time Yair's hip flexion, time Yair's hip torque, and catch him before he's able to fully extend on the kick and crowd the movement and crowd the space and land that straight left hand from southpaw. I think that's going to be a big weapon for Emmett. I think he's going to use his wrestling, but I think the kicks to the body and the low kicks are going to work early and often. I think Yair's going to come out quick. I think Emmett's going to come out quick as well. But he, Yair's going to be able to keep it at kicking range. I think he'll get hit and get hurt, and it really only takes one shot from a guy like Josh Emmett to put you out. I mean, we've seen that multiple times in his career. He's losing the fight until he's not, and usually if he's not, he's either knocking you out. He's either knocking you out or he's dropping you. So you have to take that into consideration. But I think the kicking technique, the fast twitch muscle fibers, the power that Yair generates with the speed and no telegraph – that he has in those kicks, it's going to give Josh Emmett a lot of trouble. Low kicks, body kicks, the right kick to the body, the one-two stance switch to southpaw, left kick to the body. I think he's going to really attack the body and slow him down, and then he's going to come up top with a left high kick 
and drop Josh Emmett and get the TKO victory. So my pick is going to be Yair El Pantera Rodriguez, the number two ranked featherweight to become the new interim UFC featherweight champion via a third round left head kick knockout. I could see Emmett winning. If it goes to a decision, I would more lean towards the side of Emmett because of what we already talked about with him resorting to his wrestling, slowing down Yair and banking the championship rounds. But I think eventually Yair is going to find the, the shot. You know, there's no telegraph in his kicks. There's a lot of power and a lot of speed. And he's going to work low, work to the body, and eventually set it up high. It's going to be the high kick kill shot for Yair Rodriguez. Yair Rodriguez to become the new interim featherweight champion via a third round left head kick knockout. All right, and now we get to the main event of the evening for the UFC lightweight championship. You have champ versus champ as the UFC featherweight champion, 25-1, Alexander the Great Volkanovsky moves up to 155 pounds to challenge Islam Mahachev at 23-1 for his UFC lightweight championship. A combined record of 48-2 between two of the best mixed martial artists on the planet. This is not only a battle of who will leave Perth, Australia as the UFC lightweight champion. It is also a battle of who is going to leave as potentially the number one pound-for-pound -pound fighter in mixed martial arts. Ooh, I'm getting out of breath just friggin' hyping up that intro, baby. Let's go! Let's go! This is such a great fight, man. I'm so excited to break this down for you. I hope you're just as excited to listen to my breakdown on Volkanovsky versus Mahachev or Makachev, however you want to say it. But I believe Mahachev is the correct pronunciation. All right. Let's look at the stats real quick before we get into the breakdown. 5'10 for the champion in Islam Mahachev. 5'6 for the featherweight champion in Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. Four-inch height advantage for Islam, but... At the same time, Volkanovski is used to having a height disadvantage in most of his fights, so I don't necessarily think that's going to play too much of a factor in how Volkanovski approaches it because he's used to being the shorter guy, so don't pay too much attention to that when you break it down. Reach, a one-inch reach advantage for Volkanovski, 70-and-a-half-inch 70 reach for Mahachev to 71-and-a-half-inch reach for Volkanovsky, you have a 40.5-inch leg reach for Islam Mahachev to a 36-inch leg reach for Volkanovsky. That's going to be very important. I mean, Islam is the taller guy, 4-inch height advantage and a 3.5-inch leg reach advantage, or a 4.5-inch leg reach advantage. So the kicks of Islam Mahachev from a long range, you know, to the body, to the head, I think those can give Volkanovsky some issues, but I don't think we're going to see too many kicks from the side of Islam, aside from a left high kick, maybe to stop the right hand of Volkanovski to negate the right hand and shut it down with that high guard. But I think more of the kicking game is going to come from Volk because he sets it up so well and finds a way to close the distance and kind of put a smoke screen in front of his kicks to land them effectively. And we'll talk about that when we get into the full-on breakdown. When you look at the win percentages, you've got a 17% KOTKO victory rate for Islam Mahachev, a 48% submission rate and a 38 or a 35% decision rate. So Islam is sitting at a 65%. Uh, yeah, wait, yeah, a 65% finish rate. And then with Volkanovski, you've got a 63% finish rate with a 38% decision rate. Average fight time. 
Mahachev gets him out of there pretty quick most of the time. Nine minutes and six seconds to 16 minutes and 50 seconds for Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. Volkanovsky's got the ability to TKO you, but a lot of the time he drags you into the deep waters and gets the nod on the scorecards. Knockdowns per 15-minute fight. I don't think this is going to be too much of a factor, especially in this 25-minute bout. 0.38 for the lightweight champion in Islam Mahachev to 0.37 for Alexander Volkanovsky. We look at the significant strikes. This will be very interesting. You got 2.37 significant strikes landed per minute for Mahachev to 6.79 significant strikes landed per minute for Volkanovsky, the featherweight champion. So you're sitting at a four point, let's see, a 4.42 strike per minute advantage is the significant strikes landed per minute. So he's like tripling over tripling up the output that Islam throws in terms of the strikes, not only thrown, but landed as well. When it comes to the accuracy, not only is Volkanovsky more active by a mile, I mean, landing over four more significant strikes per minute, but Islam's at a 59% significant strike accuracy rate to a 57% significant strike accuracy rate for the featherweight champion in Volkanovsky. So even though Islam is 2% more accurate with the significant strikes, you also have to look at the fact that Volkanovsky is landing over four more significant strikes per minute. Strikes absorbed per minute, this is going to be more on the side of Islam. He doesn't get hit very much. 0.95 significant strikes absorbed per minute for the lightweight champion to 3.53 significant strikes absorbed per minute for Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. So even though he's landing over four more strikes per minute is Volkanovsky, he's also taking over two and a half more strikes per minute when it comes to the statistical analysis. Defense, 66% striking defense for Islam Mahachev to 60% striking defense rate for the featherweight champion in Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. When you look at the grappling, 3.42 takedowns per 15-minute fight for Islam, almost four takedowns per 15-minute fight to 1.71 takedowns for Volkanovsky. So basically, almost four takedowns for Islam to almost two takedowns per 15-minute fight for Volkanovsky, but we knew the wrestling and grappling and top control advantage was more going to come on the side of the lightweight champion in Mahachev to begin with. Takedown accuracy, again, you got to break that down, 65% takedown accuracy. So not only is Islam shooting almost four takedowns per 15-minute fight, he's getting at least six to seven out of 10 of those takedowns on every attempt. So if he shoots 10 takedowns, he's getting at least six, sometimes seven out of those 10 takedowns. When it comes to Volkanovsky, he only has a 36% takedown accuracy rate. So let's say Volkanovsky shoots two takedowns. He's getting, not always getting one. You know, he's he's really not too accurate with his takedowns, but he shoots them to offset the opponent's rhythm. And sometimes he will get the opponent to the ground. When it comes to takedown defense, 88% takedown defense rate for Islam Mahachev to 73% takedown defense rate for Alexander Volkanovsky. You know, basically he's defending seven to eight out of 10 takedowns. Islam defending almost nine out of 10 takedowns when it comes to breaking it down statistically. It's not really going to be takedowns on the side of Volkanovsky. I could see him using some trips if he's able to catch a kick of Islam and, and you know, trip out the base leg and get a takedown that way. But I don't necessarily think we're going to see Volkanovsky close the range and get into clinch range with 
Islam Mahachev and, you know, shoot the takedown. Because even if you shoot and Islam defends it, yeah, you're making him work. But at the same time, you're putting yourself into the position to get put in the over-under, to get put in the double-under clinch, to get, you know, Russian tie sweeped and swept into mount like he did to Armin Sarukian. Anytime you're giving Islam the ability to get into clinch range where he can offset your rhythm and use his grappling in the over-unders, the double-unders, the body lock, the inside trips, the outside trips, you know, the Russian tie sweeps like we've talked about, the Russian tie sweep into mount like he did against Armin, you know, body lock takedowns like he used against Tiago Moises, double leg takedowns, single legs. Anytime you're in that realm where he can set up those entries, set up those transitions, that's not where Volkanovsky is going to want to be. So being in the clinch is definitely not the best idea for Volkanovsky, but we can stop ranting. Uh, Islam also has a 1.27 submission average per 15-minute fight to 0.22 for Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. But we knew the grappling was going to be more on the side of Islam Mahachev. The odds for this fight are completely disrespectful. I think Islam's like a minus 350, minus 400 favorite to a plus 300 underdog for Volkanovsky. I know we've seen this a lot with Islam where he's such a big favorite in some of his fights and then you know, everybody jumps on the dog, but then he dominates his opponent and it doesn't really matter. I feel like this is definitely the Khabib effect. We're going to see a lot of people throwing money on the featherweight champion in Volkanovsky, myself included. I'm probably going to put some money on Volk as well. That doesn't tell you my prediction because we haven't got there yet, but I could definitely see myself throwing some money on Alexander the Great. But, you know, it's kind of the, the thing of Khabib. Like, yeah, Islam's lost before he was knocked out by Adriano Martins early in his career. Volkanovski has also lost in MMA. The one loss he had was at 170 pounds, so you have to take that into consideration when breaking down the matchup as well. You know, Mahachev, or I'm sorry, what was I going to say? I know the odds are going to make you immediately want to jump on Volkanovski, and I'm not going to, you know, fret you for that, but you have to look at Khabib's career where he was constantly a big favorite in all of his fights, and people would jump on the underdog thinking he was finally going to lose. It's kind of the same thing with Islam. It's a lot of the same thing with the Dagestanis, you know, especially out of Khabib's camp. You know, the odds are going to make you think to go one way, but intelligence may tell you to go another way if you really break down the fight from an analytical standpoint and do some tape study. Listen, we know what Islam's going to look to do. He's going to look to close the distance on Volk, get into the clinch, use the inside and outside trips, Use the single legs, use the double legs. I think the trips are going to be what Islam looks for just because the fact that Volkanovsky is a shorter fighter, it helps him in terms of takedown offense if he was the one who was going to be shooting those takedowns because you're lower to the ground. But it also helps you in terms of defending takedown attempts because you have a lower center of gravity and it's going to make it easier for you to lower your level and distribute your base evenly to stop potential inside trips, outside trips, double leg takedowns. But the clinch is not the place that Volkanovsky wants to be. Volkanovsky is a master of using fakes and feints, rhythm changes, you know, kind of pushing you forward and then pulling you back. You know, he's a push and pull style of fighter. Push forward, back up, push forward, pull you in. You know, even against Max Holloway, especially in the trilogy bout, it was one, two, step back, uppercut, left hook, one, two, step back, cross, left hook. So he would one, two, 
and then anticipate the counter and counter the counter. Volkanovski is an offensive fighter who counters your counter, anticipating that you're going to have a counter waiting for him. And that's something that Islam has to be weary about, but I feel like Islam is going to try to counter the pressure of Volkanovski or counter the anti-pressure, I guess, because he's kind of like that push and pull, so the pressure isn't always looking like it's in Volkanovski's control, but he's kind of controlling the ability to pull you in and lure you into the game that he wants to play. I feel like Islam pressuring Volkanovski, you know, I think Islam is definitely going to be the pressure fighter. He's going to be the one pushing Volkanovski back, you know, trying to get him up against the cage. But Volk is so good at using the lateral movement. He's so good at angle changing, you know, one, two, pull back, two, three, boom, move off. You know, and we said the same thing about Charles Oliveira, where Oliveira is not only good at striking going forward, he's also good at landing counter shots backing up. I think Volkanovski is a much better counter striker off the back foot than Charles Oliveira is. But we saw that even with Islam, you know, it doesn't really matter because he was able to outstrike Oliveira in most aspects as well. Um, you know, Oliveira had some okay success, but for the most part, it was a one-way ticket to ass-kicking county for the new lightweight champion in Islam Mahachev in a fight where I picked Oliveira to win, and I thought it was going to be competitive. And even though some of the grappling exchanges were competitive and Oliveira was able to reverse and get back up to his feet, you know, it was basically domination in a one-way show for Islam Mahachev. You know, and this fight is actually very difficult to break down because, you know, Volkanovsky has good takedown defense. We talked about it statistically, but he's never fought a wrestler the likes of an Islam Mahachev, but he has fought a grappler with the jiu-jitsu, the likes of Islam Mahachev. But the difference between Ortega, Brian Ortega, who we're talking about in Islam, is the fact that Ortega isn't really a grappler based on top pressure and shutting down your potential defense. He'll use your defensive inconsistencies to open up the submission attempts and the possibilities. He's not much of a takedown offense. He's more of a you know, have them shoot the takedown or have me hurt them, then they give me their neck or have them try to work up off of a takedown attempt or a grappling exchange where I end up on top and then I can grab their neck. Just like in the fight where Volkanovsky got a kick caught and a right hand landed and then Volkanovsky fell to his back and immediately Brian Ortega was on the top position in the mount locking up the front choke trying to get the guillotine and almost got it. And then another time Volkanovsky jumped into the guard again of Brian Ortega and tried to play around a little bit and almost got caught in a triangle choke. I mean, Ortega definitely sets up his submissions faster, but Islam is different in, than Khabib in the fact that he can stay on the feet. He's comfortable playing on the feet, but he's also a little bit more submission hungry in terms of looking to set up the submissions when I feel like Khabib was more of looking to, you know, Khabib was more looking to get positional dominance and then set up the submission attempts off of your defensive irresponsibility. With Islam, I feel like he hunts for submissions more than Habib did, which makes him more of a threat um, and makes Volkanovski need to really mind his P's and Q's if the fight does go to the ground. And to be honest, if the fight goes to the ground, I mean, Volkanovski's in a world of trouble. I know he survived against Ortega. I don't necessarily think he can survive for that long against Mahachev. However, I think the strength of Volkanovsky is something that people are heavily underestimating. I mean, the guy was a former rugby player, a former professional rugby player, playing at upwards of over 200 pounds. He fought at 170. That's the only loss he had in his MMA career, at least in the pro side. You know, and Volkanovsky is now down at 145. To formally weigh, you know, 
over 200 pounds and play rugby and then to, to get down to such good shape to the fact where you can lose all that fat, turn it into muscle, lean yourself out and be able to compete at 145 when he probably walks around at like 170, 172, somewhere around there. If I had to guess, that would probably be his walk around weight between 165 and 175. You know, I think that strength in such a compact frame is going to make it a lot harder for Islam to tie up with Volkanovsky than people are anticipating. And I think his takedown defense is going to be a lot better because of the fact that he's a shorter fighter. I think it's going to be harder for Islam to set up those takedowns because, you know, the, the double legs and single legs aren't going to be as easy because Volkanovsky's lower to the ground and his base is more down to the ground than a taller opponent, like a Dan Hooker, so to speak, who's a training partner of Alexander Volkanovsky, or like an Oliveira, who's a tall, long-rangey guy. Volkanovsky's short, he's compact, and he's powerful, which means that the doubles and singles aren't going to work the best. And even in the clinch, the fact that Volkanovsky's lower is going to make it easier for him to defend the takedowns than if it was a taller opponent where he could use that height to kind of manipulate their balance and take them down. It's going to be harder to take down a shorter opponent. But I do think Islam will get some takedowns. Like I said, it's the push and pull from Volkanovsky. It's the one, two, pull back, two, three. It's the jab, jab, left hook, right hand, left hook, right low kick. It's the left hook into the left outside low kick. It's the one, two, one, two, left hook into that inside low kick because he's going to be fighting a southpaw. So one, two, left hook, drag it across to the inside, attack the lead right leg of Islam. You know, and he's going to be looking to get that outside foot. I expect a jab-heavy approach from Volkanovski. A lot of fakes and feints to offset the rhythm of Islam. Try to pull out the shots and then back up, maintain the distance. And then as Islam, you know, goes back to reset after that failed takedown attempt, that's when the strikes are going to come. So he's going to fake and feint, jab, 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 left hook. Feint, Islam's going to feint, probably shoot, back up. One, two, one, three, two, two, three, and then move. One, two, three, two. You know, the speed of Volkanovsky with the striking on the feet is going to give Islam a lot of trouble. But I also think people underestimate Islam's striking ability. I mean, he did drop Charles Oliveira with the right hook into the straight left, or the straight left into the right hook. He's very good with the 3-2 right hook straight left. Very good with the 1-2 from southpaw, the 2-3. It's hook, cross, cross, hook, jab, cross. Those are the best weapons from Islam, and he's very good with the left high kick. He landed that against Charles Oliveira as well. So look out for the left body kick and the left high kick from Islam to try to shut down the power right hand of Volkanovski. I think we're going to get a chess match, and this fight is going to be a lot more competitive than people actually actively anticipate when breaking it down. I think the fakes and feints are going to draw out takedown attempts from the range that Islam does not want to be at. I think the speed of Volkanovsky is going to give a lot of trouble to Islam, especially when he tries to set up those takedowns. I think the fact that Volkanovsky is so in tune and focused for every one of his fights mixes up the takedowns, mixes up the stance changes. You know, one, two, left hook, low kick behind it. One, two, kick behind it. He sets up weird angles and throws his kicks at the same time that he throws his punches. Volkanovsky does not throw naked kicks. Every kick that he throws is set up behind a hook into the same side kick, across into the same side kick, across into the lead side kick. You never really see Volkanovsky throw naked kicks where it's not set up. And everything that Volkanovsky throws is set up with a fake. It's set up with a feint. It's set up with something in front of it to time you and get you to run into something that you're not anticipating. Volkanovsky is a master of the push and pull, a master of the fake and faint game, and everything is set up. And on top of that, he has the strength carried down 
to the 155-pound division. Even though he's moving up, I think the strength isn't going to be much of a problem for Volkanovski. He's used to being the shorter fighter. The last thing he wants to do is get taken down by Islam and end up on the bottom. We saw him have trouble against Ortega. If you have trouble against Ortega, you're going to have trouble against Islam. But I think the fakes and feints, the strength of Volkanovski, the ability to use everything and set up everything that he throws and be very meticulous, I think that Volkanovski is one of the most intelligent fighters in mixed martial arts. And I think the fact that he sets up everything and is so focused on his game plan throughout the entirety of the fight and never breaks focus. Islam doesn't break focus either, but I think it's due to the fact that he's had so much success and not too much resistance that if Islam starts to get resisted and the takedown attempts aren't there, the range is off for Islam and he's getting caught with counters against Volkanovski, who's going to be the more heavy power puncher and the faster overall striker. He's going to have the speed and power advantage. Islam is going to have the grappling dominance, the grappling strength, and the positional advantage against a guy like Volkanovski with the height advantage. But the power, the speed, you know, the ability to use the fakes and feints, you know, the fact that Volkanovski doesn't break focus, I think that's all things you have to look into. You have to look into the mental side, man. Both of these guys do not lose. And although Islam, you know, has been so dominant, you know, at this point in his career, Volkanovski has also beaten much higher level competition. Chad Mendez, Jose Aldo, Brian Ortega, Max Holloway three times, the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. I mean, you name it, Volkanovski has beat the best of the best at 145 pounds. Islam has beat some very, very solid competition as well. And you can't discredit him, but he beat Charles Oliveira, dominated him. You have to take that. That's his best win. But before that, Bobby Green, Tiago Moises, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of the same narrative that we've had with, you know, Habib Nurmagomedov throughout his career. You know, until he got to those upper echelon of opponents, we always said, oh, well, he only fought Gleason Tebow. He only fought, you know, um, who am I forgetting? Not TJ Grant. Uh, I can't think. Pat Neely. Pat Healy, sorry. You know, he beat Pat Healy. Okay. He beat Michael Johnson. Okay, Johnson's not that great. Oh, he beat Edson Barbosa. Barbosa's a good fighter, but he he always falls under the pressure. We said it so many times until we just couldn't say it anymore. And although Islam's not undefeated, he still has one loss early in his career that is by KO, so we have to take that into consideration as well. But Islam hasn't fought that competition level yet, just like Habib, to where you can't discredit it. But if we're looking at it statistically and just as an analytical standpoint, you know, Volkanovski has fought the better competition. And I guess what you're looking for right now is who do I think is going to win? Who is my pick? Do I think Islam will improve to 24 and 1 and be and you know retain his lightweight title and become the pound for pound best in the sport? Udru, I think Volkanovsky spoils the party. Do I think Alexander the Great becomes the greatest pound for pound mixed martial artist in modern day MMA? Cue the wheel of fortune music. My pick for this fight is going to be and new. I'm going with Alexander Volkanovsky. I've never picked against Volk since I've done this podcast, and I haven't been wrong yet. And that's not necessarily the entire reason, so you can take it with a grain of salt when it comes to me making a prediction for this fight. But to be honest, man, I think Volkanovsky is so mentally tough. I think he's so good with the fakes and feints. I think his mental game, along with his technical game, he's such a smart fighter. Islam is very smart as well, but I feel like 
Sometimes he goes into areas of fights that he doesn't want to be in or need to be in just because he wants to prove a point. Even there was points against Charles Oliveira where he went into aspects of the fight where he didn't have to and entertain the striking, even though he outstruck Charles for the majority of the fight and showed that his striking isn't as bad. He really has to stick to the game plan against Volkanovski, and Volkanovski is a master of sticking to a game plan. Very methodical, very, you know, win strategy based. The number one key for Volkanovski is to win the fight. He's not necessarily always worried about putting on entertaining fights. His number one priority is to win. Islam is the same way, which makes this fight so interesting on every level. And the UFC should be ashamed of themselves for how little they've promoted this fight in the lead up, because this is potentially the fight of the year and one of the best fights that the MMA gods could ever have graced us with. This is one of the best fights in mixed martial arts history. And the fact that not too many people are talking about it right now really makes me mad. But besides the point, the fakes and faints, the mental side of this fight, you know, the ability that Volkanovski has to never stray away from a game plan, even under pressure and even in danger. I think he gets it done, man. I think he uses those fakes and feints. I think he outstrikes Volkan or uh, Islam on the feet. I know Islam striking looks better, but Volkanovski is far and ahead the better, more technical, and more powerful striker on the feet, and it's not even close. And I'm just going to go with Volk, man. I think he gets it done. You've heard my analysis. You've heard my breakdown. I'm going with and new Alexander the Great Volkanovsky to defeat the lightweight champion in Islam Mahachev, moving him to 23-2 and two and improving Volkanovsky's record to 26-1 and one and becoming the new UFC lightweight champion. All right, that's it for this fight. When it comes to the betting side, I like the over two and a half rounds. I really do. I think it's like minus 160, minus 165. I like that. I like Volkanovski on the money line, but I wouldn't parlay it. If you're looking to parlay this fight, you would do the over two and a half rounds, in my opinion. That's what I think the best play is for this fight overall. But you can get this podcast anywhere your podcasts are distributed. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many, many more. This podcast will be uploaded in full with edits and broken down into individual segments on my YouTube channel, which is almost at 3,000 subscribers now. Thank you again to anybody who partook in that because I'm trying to take over the MMA and pro wrestling game in terms of the media side. So thank you all. You can support the podcast by donating to the PayPal address located in the description. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on my YouTube channel where this will be uploaded. And have a blessed day. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out.